Well, we're going through the parables in the Gospel of Matthew, and we reach a parable, a story that Jesus told to illustrate something about the kingdom of God. And uh, actually, this parable is, well, I hope you'll agree, it's actually quite fitting for this particular day. Because the reality is that, as I prayed, we live in a world that is full of paradoxes and seeming contradictions. Over the last 48, 72 hours, we've seen both the best of humanity and the worst of humanity. We hear news of events in Beirut and in Paris. I don't know where you were on Friday evening, but uh, we were watching Children in Need, and there was this strange juxtaposition of the two events taking place at the same time. The news of the atrocities that were occurring in Paris, and at the same time, almost in a sort of split screen, Children in Need and £37 million being raised for children, vulnerable children in the UK. And you saw both the best and the worst of humanity. Children in need, five million more given this year than last year in a time of supposed austerity, but still people give. And yet the tragic pictures and sadness of the news and events as they unfolded from Paris. We live in a world of seeming paradoxes and contradictions where we live in a world where, if we're honest, the response to Friday's events will be perhaps to cry for revenge or increased security, and that's understandable. But if we react too far in that particular direction and become too focused on security and safety, then we become a culture, a society, that is trapped and perhaps becomes obsessed by safety and security. And if I'm honest, I fear that we are in danger of becoming just that society, a society that is so risk-averse that there is little room left for experimentation, for change, and for fun. Even with children, we want to protect them. We want to look after them. We want to make sure that they're okay. The play it's safe culture is very pervasive and attractive. And we do need risk assessments. Those things are important. And let me assure you that as a church, we have great people on the staff of the church and on the vestry of the church who help us do risk assessments. Every event that occurs in the church buildings has a risk assessment done on it. Even Sunday services, there is a risk assessment carried out. I'm not sure those baptisms uh, actually were covered uh, in the risk assessment, Rich. Um, But every month, uh, James Rogers, one of the vestry members, brings us. uh, It's a fantastic um, risk assessment grid. Uh, And down in the bottom left are things that are unlikely. They're in green. Uh, Top uh, right are the things that are both most likely and the greatest uh, sense of uh, risk and consequences. So the rector having a heart attack is up in red uh, every month in the top right-hand corner. Uh, children's baptisms, I think, are going to move into the amber uh, after this morning. Um, risk assessments are important. Those things are necessary. But actually, as a church, we want to be a church that takes risks. The danger of becoming so obsessed with assessing risks is that as individual Christians or as churches, we stop taking faith-filled, God-directed 
risks. It's actually one of our values. If you go on the church website, if you pick up one of our new handbooks, you will see one of our 10 values as a church is we want to be a church that takes risks. This is how it's worded there. We believe that God wants us to be a church that takes calculated risks, to be innovative, radical, and creative in our worship, evangelism, and life together. That is who we are as P's and G's. We want to be a church that takes risks. But it's becoming increasingly difficult when we live in a culture and in a society that is risk-averse. And as I say, we want our children to be safe. There's a lovely story that the church leader, Erwin McManus, who leads Mosaic Church over in Los Angeles, tells about when his son, Aaron, was a lot younger than he is now. When he was very young, Aaron went to a Christian camp over the summer in the States. And uh, round the bonfire each night, because it was a Christian camp, they didn't tell ghost stories, but they told demon and Satan stories, uh, because it was a Christian camp, and they told stories like that. And when his son Aaron, I think was about six or seven, came back from this camp, he was absolutely scared witless, uh, because night after night they told stories about demons and the devil and Satan and how powerful he was and how scary he was. And this kid was absolutely scared stiff. And so as uh, Erwin McManus put his son to bed that night, he heard his son plead with him, Dad, Daddy, please don't turn the bedroom light off. Please don't turn the bedroom light off. Can you stay with me? They told all these stories about demons, and I'm afraid. Daddy, Daddy, please, will you pray for me? And Owen McManus tells a story against himself that he sat down on his son's bed and was just about to pray for his son to be safe. And then something happened. He he sensed what he describes as sort of comfortable, warm blanket Christianity enveloping him. And the temptation was to pray for his son to be safe. But he suddenly found himself increasingly uncomfortable with that. And so he started to pray, and the words that he prayed out loud were both a surprise to Erwin McManus and even more shocking for his son. Because he prayed these words, Aaron, I will not pray for you to be safe. I pray, however, that God will make you dangerous, so dangerous that demons will flee when you enter a room. It was a soft and reluctant, amen, (laughs) from his son. And again, a question, dad, could you pray again? But pray I will be really, really dangerous if that's what you're going to pray. Now, that reality is true. We are called as Christians to live dangerous lives. There's that tension in the songs that we've been singing already this morning about God's security, God as our guardian, God as the one who is all-powerful, God as the one who will be there with us. But God does not look after us in order to give us a quiet life. We are called to live dangerous lives as Christians. That's why Christians in the parts of the Middle East and the Far East and in China, they're persecuted for their faith because they lead dangerous lives. 
They continue to meet together, to pray and to witness, because that is what God has called them to do. They pray, yes, for God's protection, but they don't pray that they might lead safe and quiet lives. And that temptation to play it safe is at the heart of today's parable. The one that Andy read for us a few moments ago. If you've got your Bible open or if you've got your smartphone and your Bible app, turn again to Matthew chapter 25 and verses 14 to 30. Now again, the context in which Jesus says these words is important. Jesus is in the middle of some of the last words that he speaks to his followers. It's just, I don't know, 48, 72 hours before Jesus is arrested and then put to death. He's been, in the last week of his life, Jesus has been uh, entering into Jerusalem. He's been causing a, a, a storm in, in, in the capital city. He's endured the opposition of the high priests and the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees in the Jewish establishment. And now Jesus draws alongside with his followers, with his 12 disciples, and starts to teach them. As they're going through Jerusalem, they, they point the architecture of, of the temple, one of the great wonders of the ancient world, and they, they point the, the, the magnificence of the architecture, and they say to Jesus, look at these stones, Jesus. It's an incredible building, isn't it? And Jesus says, all these stones will be overturned, Matthew 24 and verse 2. And he prophesies the overflow of the overthrow of the temple, the fact that in AD 70, the, the Romans would lay siege to the capital city and the temple itself would fall. A building that seemed so impregnable would just come to nothing in a few years' time. And then Jesus starts to tell them three stories about his second coming. He starts in Matthew 24 to speak about his second coming. And in chapter 25 of Matthew's gospel, we have three parables that Jesus tells about his second coming. The first one is about ten young women at a wedding. We looked at that one last week. The third one is about sheep and goats. We looked at that one at the start of this sermon series back in September. The first one, about ten young women, is about being ready, about living those noble lives that Rich was encouraging us to last Sunday. The third is about the fact that there will be a division when Jesus comes back. There will be sheep and there will be goats. And this story, the one in the middle, is about bags of gold. Now, sometimes it's referred to as the parable of the talents. That's how it's interpreted. It's about people's abilities. It's about what you do with what you've been given. That, that's partly true. Um, I've preached some of those um, um, talks. I've, I've been in the, the Riding Lights sketch about the parable of the talents. That, that can be got uh, from this passage. But I learned this week that the word talent... That, that we use to describe someone's ability, someone's gifts. We, we speak about that, that footballer having talent. We speak about Britain having talent, or maybe when you watch the TV program, realizing that Britain hasn't got very much talent at all. Um, but we talk about talents, and it actually comes from this parable. But the word talenter that's here in the New Testament, the Greek word, meant something different. It meant something quite specific. The talenter was the largest unit of money in the ancient world. And so what Jesus is saying here is that uh, there was a master who gave people talenters. Now, a talenter was the equivalent of 10,000 days of someone's 
wages. So I got my calculator out this week and worked out that if you, even on the national living wage of £8.25 an hour, it means the story reads like this. And it's, it's more like a sort of task in The Apprentice. Um, so think about the master being Lord Sugar. Um, that's what's going on here in the story that Jesus tells. A man had three servants or three contestants in The Apprentice. He gave money to each of them, judged on their ability to handle responsibility. To one, he gave 3.3 million pounds. That's how much five talenters were. He gave the second 1.2 million pounds. And to the third, he gave a mere 660,000 pounds. And then he went away. The first servant doubled his money to 6.6 million pounds. The second doubled it to 2.4 million pounds. But the third simply put the 660,000 pounds in a hole in the ground. Now, a hole in the ground in the Middle East, that signified the safest possible place in the world. A hole in the ground meant that nobody could get to it. A hole in the ground meant that it was hidden. A hole in the ground meant that it was protected. A hole in the ground meant that nobody knew where that money was and nobody could get in and steal it. There was no risk and there was no danger. It was the safest place that people knew. Then the master summoned the contestants back into the boardroom. The first contestant brought out and returned 6.6 million pounds. Lord Sugar, he said, you gave me 3.3 million pounds. I doubled it. The second came and said, Lord Sugar, you gave me 1.2 million. I doubled it too to 2.4 million. And both were commended by Lord Sugar for their faithfulness and were told to go back to the house. But the third came forward. Master, he said, I knew that you were worse than Lord Sugar, even though in my story you are now Lord Sugar. I knew you were a hard man, so I was afraid, so I hid your gold. It's still safe. Look, here is the 660,000 pounds. But the master was furious and said, with no regret, you're fired. (laughs) Take the 660,000 pounds and give it to the first servant to keep. Now, the story is similar to one in Luke's gospel. That one's called the parable of the miners, M-I-N-A-S, not M-I-N-E or O-R-S. And in the parable of the miners, there are some similarities, but also some significant differences. In the parable of the miners, in Luke's story, all three servants are given exactly the same amount. In Matthew's story, in verse 15, they're each given according to their ability. In Luke's story, the focus is on the return of Jesus, on the return of the master. In Matthew's story, the focus is on the servant's response to be faithful and fruitful. Now, for those who were listening to Jesus, his followers, the application would have been obvious. You see, in the last few days, they'd been aware of being surrounded by people who had played it safe. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, the high priests, the people in Jesus' hometown back in Nazareth, the people who'd refused to accept Jesus' message and refused to accept that Jesus was the Messiah, they were people who were playing it safe. 
they were people who were the equivalent of the third servant who put the treasure and simply hidden it in the ground. They'd done little wrong, just like the third servant, but they played it too safe. They'd forgotten that God had promised to bless them, but through them, then to bless the whole world. They've been given the incredible riches of being chosen by God as God's people. They've been given the Torah, they've been given the law, but they just buried it in the ground. They kept it safe so that nobody else could get to it. They kept it safe where it, it could be looked after, but where it couldn't grow, where it couldn't develop, where it couldn't go out to the entire world. They've been given incredible wealth, and they'd done a great job of preserving it. But now they found themselves condemned as worthless servants in the story that Jesus told. Like the third servant, they'd become passive servants, driven by fear, driven by fear of failure, driven by the fear of being found out, driven by the fear of what if it doesn't work out. Now, for the followers of Jesus, both those who are listening to Jesus and people like you and me who claim to be Christ's followers here and now, the application was something slightly different. The challenge for them and the challenge for us is to be like the first two servants, to risk all for the kingdom of God, to realize that we have been given an utterly lavish gift in the person of Jesus that we have been given the equivalent of 3.3 million pounds or 1.2 million pounds. We have been given so much that God gave the most precious thing in the universe that he could ever give. And he's given it, he's entrusted it to us. He's given us his only son. He's given us Jesus. He's given us the gift of salvation. He's given us the gift of forgiveness. He's given us the gift of a relationship with him. He's given us the gift of knowing that our sins can be forgiven and we can live life in a relationship with God. But the last thing that we should do, therefore, is to play it safe. The last thing that we should do is simply to bury it in the ground. To allow fear or fear of failure or fear of being found out to dictate how we lead our lives. Our challenge is to risk everything. To live lives that will be dangerous. To live lives that will be costly. To live lives that will not be lives of quiet safety and security. But in a world of danger, in a world of fear, in a world of violence, in a world of terror, in a world of horrific events like those that we've seen in Beirut and in Paris, that we might lead risky, dangerous lives as Jesus calls us to live. That we might live those noble lives that Rich was encouraging us to live last week. That we might live lives of beauty and of grace. That we might live lives of kindness and generosity. That we might live lives of peace and of hope, even though people around us are fearful and anxious and scared, wanting revenge. We're called to live lives that are different. 
Lives that reflect that we belong to the kingdom of God, to a kingdom not of this world. In response to a world of danger and fear and cruelty and violence, you and I are called to live lives of grace and generosity and beauty and kindness. There's that famous quote from um, a missionary, Jim Elliott, who um, went out to South America and within minutes of stepping onto the beach and meeting for the first time the, the tribe that he'd gone to share the gospel with, they killed him. And when people started to look into Jim Elliott's life, they discovered that a few months before he'd left America and gone to South America, he'd written these amazing words in his journal. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's a paraphrase of where Jesus says, whoever wants to keep their life will lose it. But if you seek to give your life away, you'll gain it. It's exactly the reverse of our safety-first culture. It's exactly the opposite of our risk-averse society. Gary Howgen, who's the founder and chief executive of International Justice Mission, writes this in one of his books. After we have poured into our children all the good food and shelter and clothing, after we've provided them with great education, discipline, structure, and love, after we have worked so hard to provide every good thing, our children turn to us and ask, why have you given all this to me? And the honest answer from me is simply this, so you'll be safe. And the kid looks up at me and says, really? That's it? You want me to be safe? Your grand ambition for my life is that nothing bad happens? Haujin says, I think something inside them dies. They either go away to perish in safety, or they go away looking for adventure in the wrong places. Jesus, on the other hand, affirms their sense of adventure and their yearning for larger glory. We are called to live an adventure with God. We are called to live risky, dangerous lives. I'll never forget in, in one church that I, I used to work at in Birmingham. And uh, there was a guy, very successful um, surgeon. And a new vicar arrived and, and simply said to that guy, who was one of the loveliest, nicest men I have ever known in my life, and the vicar John said to Mac, Mac, what do you want out of life? And Mac was a very, very successful pediatrician consultant. And Mac simply said, I just want my kids to be happy. And I want them to be nice. Echoing the words that Gary Haugen wrote in his book. And John looked at this surgeon and said, Really, Mac? Is that all you want for your kids? You want them to be happy? and you want them to be nice. Is that it? And that started a discussion between Mac and John about where Mac stood in relation to the Christian faith. Six months later, Mac was baptized because he'd come to faith in Christ. Over the next few years, those three girls who were his daughters all came to a living faith in Jesus. They're now working for different churches 
across the UK. They're not living safe, nice lives. This is a dangerous prayer to pray. If you want to pray this morning that you and I might lead the lives that Jesus wants us to live, we may not be prepared for the answer that God has for us. The place where Rich grew up and the place where I did my curacy is a place called Knoll in Solihull. It's where actually our new associate rector, Libby, uh, also worked as an, uh, as an intern. There's a bit of a link there. Um, and uh, it's a lovely place. It's a beautiful place. Little village. It, it's a town, but it still likes to think of itself as a village. Uh, we live in a beautiful 12th, 13th century black and white cottage next door to the 12th century church. We did 60 weddings a year. It's a nightmare. Um, and it's a beautiful place. The, the, I learned so much during my four years there, but there was one thing that really just troubled me. Because Knoll, full of great people, had something called, well, it had a conservation society, although we used to refer to it as a preservation society. And it was called the Knoll Society, and you did not mess with the Knoll Society. But their strap line was quite telling. They simply said, join the Knoll Society and keep Knoll exactly as you like it. Very telling. Exactly the reverse of the kingdom of God. Exactly the opposite of what you and I are called to do. We are called to live in a world of pain and sadness, of grief, of horrendous events, incredible tragedy. But we are called to live lives of grace and generosity and beauty and kindness that reflect the person of Jesus in order that God's kingdom might come even on this earth. That this place will not stay as it is, but it will be transformed, it will be changed, and it will only happen if you and I live those lives, dangerous, risky, kingdom-first lives question is, are you and I prepared to pray that prayer? Are you and I prepared to lead those lives? Rich.